Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the sixth episode of Chatter in the Skull. And before I begin, I like to apologize if I sound a little bit off. I haven't been feeling that good, been feeling a little bit under the weather. In fact, it might lead to this episode being delayed by a day, but hopefully not. So this might end up being a little bit shorter than usual. And before I begin, I'm going to start with our current events segment over the kind of monologue that I had planned. Because, of course, we had the midterm elections in the United States, and it's still unclear to us who exactly is going to control the House and the Senate. This now, two days later. But in regards to the stream, we had a great stream. It was a fantastic time. And it ended up being pretty interesting because, lo and behold, as the results were coming in, it started to look like there wasn't exactly going to be the red wave that everybody was anticipating. So it was a good time watching that come in. We got to even watch a little bit of Cope as I subjected everybody to the war crime of having to watch some of the Newsmax coverage. And uh, we could see that even at that early stage, the early signs of Cope were starting to seep in. But it was definitely a good time. Without further ado, I'm going to jump into some of the results which we have seen since then and go from there. So before I begin here, I'm going to crack open a soda that I didn't get the opportunity to crack open on the stream. This is actually blue, but the green screen seems to think it's green. <laughs> it looks like I'm drinking some weird, disgusting white liquid here. Anyway, I don't know why this thinks this is green. I don't know if you guys got this in the States. This Jones soda, like a fancy soda here that have some interesting flavors and characteristics. Anyway. So let's see what we have been missing in the last couple days. So we ended the stream on a good note. We ended it just when John Fetterman was declared the winner out of Pennsylvania. Very happy about that race. I always thought he was going to pull it out. And it ended up not even being that close. It looks like we're looking at almost a five-point margin here in Philadelphia. And on election day, it actually looked like it was going to be a lot closer than it really was after things really started to shake out here. Since then, we had Wisconsin declared as Ron Johnson, the incumbent, barely eking it out by a single point in Wisconsin. <laughs> but he did eke it out, so he is going to get another six years, unfortunately. Moving down to Georgia, it is confirmed that Georgia is going to be a runoff. Herschel Walker coming under Raphael Warnock by about 50,000 votes. That was a real nail-biter all night. We were watching this one, and it was like going up and down and up and down. And when things were all tallied, it's still going to shake out to be a runoff, which is interesting. As you can see, Raphael Warnock received 49.6%. No rounding up here. You got to reach 50%. So they're going to have to have another election probably sometime in early December to decide who is actually going to gain that seat. Funny enough, this happened in 2020 as well. None of the candidates were able to reach 50%, so they had a runoff in December, which Democrats won both of those races and ended up handing them Senate control. And once again, Senate control might come down to a runoff election in Georgia. And in that runoff election, I would say that Democrats are favored, just under the fact that Herschel Walker is the kind of candidate who depresses their own vote, which is evident when you look at the actual governorship, which 
the governorship was a good night for Republicans. This is one of the few bright spots for Republicans where Brian Kemp comfortably defeated Stacey Abrams for the governor's seat. One of the things I think is interesting here is that Brian Kemp was one of the Republicans who actually came out pretty hard against Trump and would not bend the knee to Trump. And this actually seems to have benefited him politically, allowing him to comfortably cruise to re-election. That being said, Herschel Walker has that to Trump, not a great candidate. So I think that he is not favored to win that runoff. That being said, we'll have to see when the time comes. Now to the big two states, which really are holding up the show and letting us not really know who's going to be in control of the Senate. Those are Nevada and Arizona. So looking at what we see out of Arizona, it looks like Mark Kelly is going to win this one. Most likely, we have 80% reporting Mark Kelly comfortably at 51% over 49, or excuse me, 46.1 for Blake Masters. When you look at areas that have votes to come in, not necessarily. A lot of the Republican districts have had most of their votes come in. It does look like the Democratic districts remain to be counted. So I would say Mark Kelly is certainly likely to win there. But the one that's very interesting right now is Nevada. So apparently, <laughs> the thing about American elections is that they are apparently just eternal elections. And they take, some of these states take forever. And some of these counties take forever to count. And one of the interesting things about Nevada is apparently you can vote up to four days after the election. Essentially, the mail-in ballots can be counted up to four days after the election. I do like the idea of giving people more of an opportunity to vote, but I do think that there should be like a hard deadline, especially after everybody else has voted. And one of the things that's very interesting about the American system and frustrating, I think, is that Every state has a very different, they don't have a very different set of rules, but they all have a different set of rules for how they conduct an election which affects things federally across the country, which we're all sitting here waiting to figure out who's going to control the Senate because Nevada has weird rules about counting the vote. In any case, sorry about that. Just these eternal elections bother me. Every other time we cover an election, we know what's going on very quickly. I feel like we're not going to know exactly what's going to go on until Thanksgiving, essentially. And uh, yeah, it sucks. So in any case, back to Nevada. This has been a race which has been leaning Republican. However, as more and more votes have been coming in, Cortez Masto has been closing that gap to the point now where it's only around 9,000 votes with 88% of the vote reporting here. So if... The Democrats are able to close that gap, secure Nevada. It's not going to matter what happens in Georgia. Georgia would essentially be icing on the cake for the Democrats. They'd end up with 51 seats. If they lose Nevada, they'll have to win in Georgia, which will give them Senate control. And if they lose in Georgia, the Republicans will control the Senate. So we might not know who controls the Senate until the runoff in Georgia until next month. However, once we know who wins in Nevada, we'll have a much clearer picture because, again, if Democrats win in Nevada, it will be a lock for them in the Senate. So when it comes to counties which still have votes to report, 
It looks like it's about even between Democratic and Republican counties. So this one is one that could definitely go either way. So it's going to be tight. It's going to be tight in Nevada. So we will continue to watch what's going on there. And that's about it in terms of the Senate. So just watching and waiting to see what happens in Nevada and Arizona before we actually know. Moving over to the House now, just so you know, here we're using NBC News. This is a projection. They are projecting once everything shakes out, the Republicans will hold a slim majority of 220 seats. You need 118 seats to form a majority, so a very slim majority by two seats. Could be more, could even conceivably be less, but let's move over to just so you can see exactly where we stand in terms of races that are called. The Republicans have been called in 211 races and the Democrats in 204. So it still remains very close with a handful of districts still up in the air. The one which is the most interesting here is Lauren Bobart, a very MAGA type of Republican, very hard Republican, looked like she was going to go down during the actual election stream. But over the past few days, she has been clawing her way back into the fight. And now she leads by about a thousand votes. So it looks like she will end up by the skin of her teeth holding on to her seat, which is unfortunate. But at the same time, she definitely got a run for her money because this was expected to be an extremely safe Republican seat. So essentially what we can see from the election is that the red wave met the blue wall. But looking through some of these races that haven't been called yet there, this is not very close. But we can see some very close races here in New Mexico. And a lot of ones were waiting in on California where the results are extreme. This one only is... 44 we're sitting here some of these tallies are sad yeah 48 46 or three days later and half the vote has only been counted why does this take so long i have no idea it again it's, it's frustrating it bothers me so the house is going to come down to the narrowest of margins in a year where all conventional wisdom points to the republicans winning the house comfortably Essentially, conventional wisdom is that during a midterm election, the party in power usually does poorly, and they, the Democrats did do worse in this election than they did in 2020, but it was they did substantially better than anyone really expected, and the Republicans did substantially worse than they expected, including me. I thought that they would do better last night, or they, I thought they would do better on Tuesday than they ended up doing. Even I thought that, uh, I didn't, like I said, I didn't think it was going to be a red wave. I always thought it was going to be close, but I did think that the Republicans were going to eke it out by a much more comfortable margin than we're looking at right now. So yeah, who knows how long it's going to be before we actually have definitive answers as to who has won control of the House. So we'll wrap up our mid-talk here with our governor results. When we, when we left off, it looked like the governor elections in a lot of these Rust Belt states were still up in the air, and Democrats have managed to hold on to all of them. The one real surprise here is Wisconsin. This was one we thought was going to go to the Republicans. However, the Democrats managed to hold on by actually a fairly comfortable margin. 
But the really interesting one here is Arizona, where on election night, it looked like Carrie Lake was going to go down pretty easily, pretty handily. She's clawed her way back to the fight. It's now definitely a close race. That being said, Hobbs is still in the lead, and her lead is growing as the votes start to trickle in out of Arizona. So it, she is still probably favored to win here. And then lastly, we have the two races in Oregon and Nevada. Oregon way closer than I think anyone thought here. I don't know much about the internal politics of Oregon, but it looks like they have a strong independent here that is eating away votes from the Democrat. But it looks like ultimately Tina Kotick is going to pull that race out. In Nevada, this is one. I love this guy's name, Joe Lombardo. <laughs> what a great name. This guy sounds like a legitimate, like, Better Call Saul character or something. In any case, a good old Joe, he is in a much better position for his governor race than the Senate race, where he is leading his Democratic opponent substantially. And it looks like he will probably end up winning that race. So the governor, I think the, okay, yeah, so the Democrats are the incumbent. So the the Republicans may pick up one governorship here. But in, in terms of governor races, the Democrats held on to a lot of key areas. However, they lost ground in places like New York. This was a way closer race than anybody thought. Then again, the New York Democratic Party is especially terrible, and they may cost the Democrats control of the House. In terms of the governorship races, there are some good points for Republicans. This is probably the area that the Republicans had their best, had their best nights. We mentioned that Brian Kemp comfortably won in Georgia, and Florida Ron DeSantis did extremely well. It looks like Florida is going to be a comfortably Republican state in the foreseeable future. So it seems like more and more Florida is no longer a swing state, but going towards the Republican column, which is interesting. It seems like Georgia and Florida are flipping where Georgia used to be comfortably red and is now becoming a swing state, where Florida used to be a swing state and is now becoming comfortably red. In any case, moving over to Texas, another Strong showing by Governor Greg Abbott being able to beat out Beto O'Rourke pretty comfortably. This is not surprising. I'm one of the few people out there that actually kind of likes Beto, though I understand he's extremely cringe. That being said, he definitely got his clock cleaned out in Texas, but that again was to be expected. Though, and another unexpected win for the Democrats is Kansas, where the incumbent managed to win that election fairly easily. So before I wrap this up, I want to finish off this update by saying that uh, you can see the blue, my blue tongue from this, for, for whatever reason, this doesn't get, the tongue doesn't get green screened, but the soda itself does. In any case, the last thing I want to say here before we wrap this up is that this is the first time in a while that I've seen that the polls have underestimated the showing of the Democrats. Usually the polls overestimate Democrats going in. And I feel like a lot of pollsters have been trying to make adjustments to narrow in on why they have been underestimating the Republican vote. And I think that they've made some changes in that regard, but maybe they've gone too far and now they're starting to overestimate the Republican vote. 
and underestimate the Democratic vote. Who knows? We'll have to see how things shake up going into the future. But this is the first time in a while that I have seen polling errors so substantially in favor of the Democrats. So I'm going to wrap up this episode by introducing you to the final generic conservative argument. And then I'm going to end up by giving you a review of all of them. So then we can go into our next episode, which is what I wanted this one to be, which is how to use all of these and how to actually use them in argumentation. Unfortunately, that will have to follow. But in the meantime, I do want to introduce you guys to the last argument and have you start thinking about all of them together. And the last conservative argument is the one that I personally find the most compelling, but I would say it is the one that the conservatives themselves find the least compelling. And that is freedom. And I'm sure you all knew this one was coming, which is, of course, it's based on appeals to individual freedom and individual choice. And quite honestly, like I said, those arguments usually resonate with me as someone who is in favor of most types of individual freedom. So over time, I started resonating more and more with these arguments of individual freedom and freedom of choice and so on and so forth. But over time, what I started to see is two things. Basically, is that left-leaning people generally respect these ideas more than right-leaning people. And two, for right-leaning people, this freedom of choice ends very quickly when it butts up against some of these other arguments, which is why it's the last argument, because it will be the first one which gets superseded by conservatives when the time comes. So what do I mean by that? Essentially, take an argument like abortion. That is a won't somebody think of the children argument superseding an argument to freedom of choice. That's an easy one. Another one is trans people. We talked about that in the second episode. Obviously, trans issues are such an easy freedom of choice issue. However, conservatives just will not accept that Obviously, these other arguments come to supersede that freedom of choice, your freedom of gender expression, when it comes to, for example, won't you please think of the children? Another one which supersedes freedom is the West. So that's usually appeals to tradition, appeals to religion. Obviously, usually those old ideas in their mind supersede this idea of freedom because they're these time and tested honored traditions, therefore that should be respected over your individual freedom. And the more and more you think about this, the more and more you start to realize that the conservatives, they only care about freedom, generally speaking, and I, I should say that I am mostly talking about authoritarian conservatives, not necessarily right libertarians. But that being said, for them, these people, their freedom and their arguments of freedom mainly extend to themselves and their own beliefs. Essentially, when their beliefs come into contact with other people's beliefs, and if there's a mutually exclusive sort of exchange of ideas there, they will argue that their freedom, essentially, to believe what they believe, supersedes yours. But ultimately, for most of the authoritarian conservatives, freedom is merely a fig leaf that they will offer and use to extend their own political agenda. And one thing I think that a lot of left-leaning people do is 
cede the ground on this issue of freedom uh, because we are comfortable in saying that when it comes to issues of societal good, yeah, individual freedoms do play second fiddle to what we need to do to get things done and survive and thrive as a collective society. But that doesn't mean that individual rights and freedoms aren't important and shouldn't be valued and shouldn't be upheld in circumstances where they don't come into conflict with the greater whole of society. And there are so many circumstances in which they don't. In fact, I would argue that a lot of times that individual that has more freedom and more choice actually will be able to benefit society and will be able to benefit the greater whole of society much more effectively. But what's funny here, at least for the authoritarian conservative, is that they do believe that the individual has a certain duty to society and a certain obligation to fulfill that does indeed supersede the individual freedom. However, they essentially don't say it out loud. They will emphasize the individual freedom up until the point where they feel like you need to sacrifice for their idea of the greater good. Yeah, there's no question that, of course, there is a left-wing idea of the greater good, but there also exists a right-wing idea of the greater good. Unfortunately, their idea of the greater good, it affects a much smaller number of people in that circle. And before I end off the show with our little review here, unfortunately, I'm fading here, guys. I'm sorry. Like I said, not feeling that great. So we're going to have to cut some of our feel. I don't think we're going to have a feel-good story today. In any case, one of the things I did want to say here is that I was originally going to have seven arguments, and the seventh argument was going to be my private business. But essentially, that falls into freedom. That's like the... Argument 6A is my, my private business because they're correlated, essentially. The argument of my private business is just a subheader under freedom because they're both arguments of freedom. Obviously, the argument of my private business just takes freedom and extends it to business interactions and relations. Unfortunately, I hate to bring this to you in a rougher draft. I was hoping to take these notes and put them together in a nice fancy graphic. But that will have to wait. In any case, this is the review of the six basic and generic conservative arguments. And essentially when they are deployed and what arguments fall underneath them. So argument number one is the West. And they contain arguments based on tradition. So any type of this is the way things have always been. So this is the way we do them type of thing. That's the West. Arguments based on religion. Because, like I said, when it comes to conservatives arguing with non-religious people, essentially they will make religious arguments and back up their religious arguments based on the fact that you may not be religious, but our society is based on these Judeo-Christian values and you were born and raised in these Judeo-Christian values and they affect your thinking and so on and so forth. And then appeals to authority figures whether those authority figures be current or past. They can be things like historical figure, philosopher, politician, etc. Usually if they are relying on arguments based on an authority figure, it usually falls under the category of the West. So the next one is, argument number two is wokeness bad. 
This is one you've heard, I've heard. And underneath wokeness bad, this takes up most anti-left and anti-communist arguments. For example, if they appeal to, oh, socialism has done all these terrible things, or this guy likes Hugo Chavez and Hugo Chavez is a bad guy, that's wokeness bad, essentially, because what they try and do is try and tie all wokeness to leftism and leftist causes. And then from there, they argue that essentially giving any kind of woke or giving into any kind of woke anything, essentially, whether that's in media, politics, or have you, that's giving into the left. It's giving points to the left. And then they take that and extrapolate it to that's giving points to the communists, to Hugo Chavez, to socialists, so on and so forth. So essentially, they tie all these woke causes to as extreme left figures as they possibly can. And this is the underpinning for the wokeness bad argument because they don't want to give any points to the left. Anytime you give a tiny little bit to the left, they're going to go crazy and it'll be like the domino effect and we'll lose all of our cultural persuasion capabilities or what have you. All right, moving on to number three, which is won't somebody please think of the children. This is, of course, appeals to childhood innocence. We must protect childhood innocence at all costs. This is also, personally, this is my least favorite. I should say I hate this argument the most because this is the number one argument they use to override other types of freedoms. They believe that the innocence and protection of children is greater than individual freedom. I could respect this argument a lot more if they would actually just say it and not pretend like that they were the people who were in favor of individual freedom because as soon as it comes to individual freedom versus the innocence of children, the conservatives are going to drop individual freedom like a hot fucking bag of trash. However, when convenient, they will bring up the freedom argument to hide behind the shield of parental rights. The idea that I have the right to teach my child essentially whatever I want, however I want, so on and so forth. And I would mostly agree with that, although I think that with everything, we need to have healthy boundaries. And for example, if we have an instance where you have a child who is identifying as a member of the LGBTQ community and you have a parent who doesn't believe that community exists, I would say that there is definitely a healthy boundary there in which we can override those parental rights because we're getting into the realm of abuse. And I think even the conservatives would say that when it comes to issues of abuse, that essentially parental rights are overridden, but they just disagree with where that line of abuse is. This is also one that they like to push when they like to push logic out the window, of course, being the, the facts type of people. Occasionally that can only get you so far. Sometimes you need to jettison those facts and you need to hit those emotional buttons, this is the number one emotional button they like to push. And then speaking of facts, we go to the facts bait and switch. Again, this is more of a tactic, but it's a system they use to frame unreasonable arguments as reasonable. Essentially, you start off with something that is a fact, you state a fact, and then you come in and come up with some crazy explanation as to why that fact exists. And I think this is definitely one of the most powerful rhetorical devices they use when it comes to framing their arguments. And next up, we have just responsibility, bro. 
This is where arguments of individual responsibility fall into, i.e. pick yourself up by your bootstraps. And this is used as a shield to deflect from societal change. Essentially, it is a protection of their own power. Usually, you'll notice that people who deploy these types of arguments are people in positions of power and usually have a good position up on that hierarchy. And they will essentially tell you, oh, this hierarchy doesn't need to change. You just need your responsibility, bro. And maybe you can be in my position one day, maybe, probably not. And another insidious thing that if you buy into this, essentially just responsibility bro argument, it does trap you into their worldview because you get trapped into this notion that societal problems can just be solved with more individual responsibility and they simply can't. And of course, the last argument we talked about today, the argument of freedom which I would say is probably the most powerful argument they deploy. It's the one I resonate with the most personally. And this goes to obviously appeals to individual freedom, individual choice, but this also contains arguments related to freedom of business and capital. As we talked about argument 6A is my private business. Obviously when they talk about cutting business regulations and that type of stuff, that falls under the freedom argument. However, freedom it'll only goes so far, and as soon as it comes into contact with any other one of these arguments, it will essentially be jettisoned because all these other arguments take precedence over freedom and the conservative mindset. Anyway, guys, there you go. Sorry that this show was not as extensive and professional than maybe some of the other shows. Like I said, I feel a little bit under the weather. I figure it's better to get a show out at some point. And maybe not the best show, and maybe not the most professional show, but at least a show out there rather than nothing at all. And with that, we are going to end our show. So I want to thank you guys for watching. This has been The Comrade. And until next time, you guys take care.